So yeah, we're looking at wealth, money, and riches today um, and from the book of Proverbs. So uh, I invite you to open the book of Proverbs, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll dive into text in a minute. But I'm, I'm sure you've all heard uh, the statistic that the top 1% of the world's population holds 43% of global wealth. And the top 10% holds 82% of global wealth. Now, I am not an economist. Uh, I have no idea how they calculated those figures. I really have no idea how accurate they are. Um, but those are just the figures that are out there. Um, but the point is that the vast majority of the world's wealth is concentrated in the hands of a relatively small percentage of the population. And what do you think of when you think of wealth? Do you think of wealthy people? Do you think of a yearly income that you say, that is wealthy? Do you think of net worth? You know, somebody has a certain amount to their name. And when I asked Google to define wealth, it gave pictures of Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and Elon Musk. So that's what Google thinks of wealth. Maybe that's what you think of wealth, too. To some extent, however, wealth is a matter of perspective. If wealth is, as the Oxford Dictionary says, an abundance of valuable possessions or money, all of us in this room have much more than others, globally speaking. From our cars and high-tech devices to even our furniture. I mean, it's not everywhere in the world that you have tables and chairs. It's not everywhere in the world that you have couches and uh, easy chairs. And yet we have those things. Not everywhere in the world has beds to sleep on. Or, I mean, even nice bathroom amenities. But wealth in the Bible is not always about valuable possessions. Sometimes it is merely just a significant accumulation of material goods and property. And while it's interesting to, to consider what Google thinks of wealth or what we think of wealth, we really ought to be more interested in God's perspective on wealth. What does God think of wealth? What has he told us in his word? And specifically, as we're going through the book of Proverbs, what has he told us in Proverbs about his wisdom concerning wealth? Our theme this morning for our study is this. God blesses people with wealth and charges them to be generous and compassionate to those who are in need. As we look at what Proverbs has to teach us about God's wisdom concerning wealth, I think it's helpful to organize the material into different features of wealth and money. There's the dangers of wealth. There's the blessings of wealth. The limits of wealth. And stewardship of wealth. Now, if you look at this same material, you might come up with different categories, and that is A-OK. -okay. Because Proverbs does not organize these verses into uh, particular categories, such as what I've you know, shown you here. Uh, and so it's possible to, that there are other categories that, that I don't have here. In fact, it's possible that there are texts, in fact, I know there are texts in Proverbs that we will not cover today. Uh, one estimation uh, of, the, uh, of Proverbs and the text concerning wealth, riches, and, and money is that one-third of the book of Proverbs has to do with this topic. 
And so there is more material that you can study than what we can cover in one Sunday morning. But the first that we're going to look at, the first category, is the dangers of wealth. Wealth and money offer many temptations. And we all know by heart, even if we you know, didn't realize at first that it was in the Bible, but we've heard that money is the root of all evil. That comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, in a context where Paul is issuing a warning about pursuing riches. He says to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, beginning in verse 9, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now, that's a danger warning. We have to be careful. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul writes as though he knows firsthand people that have pursued riches and wealth and wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. There's a danger to wealth, and we need to be mindful of it. The, the word love of money, it's actually one word in Greek, but it refers to avarice or greed or the old word that actually is the most accurate translation of all, cupidity. But none of us really know what cupidity means anymore. In fact, one of the first dangers of pursuing wealth and money that we will consider is this danger of greed. Open your Bible to Proverbs chapter 21, and we will look at verses 25 and 26. Now, I give this, I issue this warning uh, at the beginning. There are a lot of texts that we're going to look at today. And I don't think you will be able to successfully turn to each one of them. Uh, but probably as we begin each one of these sections and subsections, you can at least turn to that one. How about that? Try, try to do that, and you'll, 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 you'll be relatively caught up. But Proverbs 21, verse 25, it says, The desire of the sluggard puts him to death. For his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while a righteous gives and does not hold back. Now there's more in these two verses than just greed, but particularly looking at the subject of greed, uh, we see that this proverb uh, reminds us that we need to put off laziness and put on diligence. Uh, there's something about being a sluggard that involves greed. And Solomon identifies it. Now, we learned this from the, from the ant in Proverbs chapter 6, where the bug was the hero of the story. And it was the man who was the villain. The sluggard will not only go into poverty because of his refusal to work, he will allow himself to die rather than lift his finger to labor for his bread. And if you think about it, the sluggard, he's resisting the end for which God made man. God made man to work for God's purposes. He made man to till the ground, to tend the garden and to keep it, to name all the animals. He gave them these charges. The sluggard defies this, 
But he also defies the curse that's been placed upon man. That we have to toil for bread. The sluggard defies the curse. God told Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. He says, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. And now, not every man on earth is compelled to toil over the ground to obtain his food. At this day and age, most of us, if, if we have a garden, it's for leisure, not because we have to survive. There are other ways to make a living, although we're never as comfortably removed from agriculture as we like to think. Agriculture is the basis of human society and economics. I mean, think about it. If nobody is working the ground, if there's no produce coming from the ground, we all starve. Those groceries don't just appear. They come from somewhere. And so all of us have to labor. All of us have to toil and work in order to survive. The sluggard defies that. That's his mentality. He is also greedy with what he does have and refuses to give to those who are in need. It says that his desire puts him to death. All day long, he is craving. He is bound to the desires of his flesh. He's a slave to his sin. And the contrast is that the righteous gives and does not hold back. The sluggard is not like that. The sluggard does the opposite. He is unrighteous. He does not give, and instead he holds back. He withholds from those who are in need. Proverbs 28.20 continues this theme. It says, A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. And this idea of hurrying after riches is something that occurs throughout the book of Proverbs. But it's an expression of greediness. If somebody is hasting after riches, at least the way that Proverbs understands that, it involves iniquity. It involves sin. He who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. We know that this is involved with evil because two verses later it says a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth. That's what characterizes the man who is hasting after wealth. He has an evil eye. He looks with malintent at others. A few verses later, Proverbs 28, 27, he who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Greed is not just hurrying after wealth. Greed is not just craving with no desire to work. Greed is also closing your heart to the poor, withholding help from those who are in need. He who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Greed can cause you to take up a number of evil pursuits, which is probably what Paul is referring to in 1 Timothy 6.10. But this leads us to the second danger of wealth and pursuing wealth, and that is injustice. Injustice is a danger because not only is there a temptation to act unjustly for motives relating to, to wealth and money, but also because, as many of these passages show, the outcome is disastrous. Proverbs 13, 11. 
It says wealth. This can also be translated property. Wealth or property obtained by fraud, literally uh, from nothing or from vanity, dwindles. But the one who gathers by labor increases it. The contrast is between wealth that's gained through vain pursuits, whether it's fraud or theft, and wealth gained through the exertion of strength or power, such as in labor. Whatever is meant by vanity here is in opposition to gaining by labor. Obtaining wealth from nothing is the opposite of gathering through authentic work. This vanity is vain pursuits. It is injustice. Proverbs 16.8 says, Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. It's better to not have anything at all nothing to your name and to have righteousness than to have great income than to have the six-figure salary or the seven-figure salary and to have injustice. The word here for injustice is literally no judgment. It's the word that's often occurring in legal contexts. Indicates This person has no discernment. They have no ability to to think rightly about matters. I mean, the judge is somebody that you want to be able to make a wise decision in a case, in a matter. A case that does justice. A case that where the judge is acting righteously. And he's not showing favoritism. That's the, that's, what you want in a judge. Proverbs 21, verse 5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty, there's that idea of hastening again, comes surely to poverty. The acquisition of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, the pursuit of death. The diligent is contrasted with the sluggard. Elsewhere, And so it's the idea is that everyone who is hasty, who is also being contrasted with the diligent, is also more than likely involved in being lazy, is, is identified as a sluggard. The idea is that the haste here involves shortcuts, or it avoids the hard work necessary to true success. I mean, if you've ever hired a contractor to carry out a project, there's always that fear that this guy's going to cut corners. And so you have to try and make sure that you hire somebody that's reputable, that has, you know, uh, that doesn't cut corners, somebody that has a good reputation. But this hastening, hastening after wealth, trying to acquire treasures the wrong way, it leads to poverty, it leads to death. Haste without diligence entails deceit. Proverbs 11.1 one. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. You've probably all seen the, the statues of, of Lady Justice, where she's holding the scales in her hand. Uh, the idea is that whenever they would tra- make transactions, they would weigh out the gold or the silver or whatever precious uh, metals there were. And you wanted to have accurate weights 
in order to be able to, to judge rightly that the person was paying the appropriate amount. That was how they determined it. Because if you, know, you had your coin minted in one country, it may not be the exact same size as a coin minted in another country. And so it would have a different amount of material and a different weight. And so you had to weigh out the money. You had to weigh out the funds. But if your weight was inaccurate in a way that you gleaned a little bit of extra profit that the person didn't know about, it was deception. You're, you said that your weight was one thing when it was actually something else. God calls that an abomination. When you use deceit in the process of obtaining wealth, that is deception. And it is an abomination to God. And the outcome, well, the outcome is not mentioned there. But things that are an abomination to God carry a drastic weight. Proverbs 20, 21. An inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. When you look at this verse, Proverbs 20, 21, the verse that immediately precedes it gives you a little bit of context. Verse 20, it says, He who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in time of darkness. The idea of gaining the inheritance hurriedly here you know, this, as we've already seen, this hastening after wealth, it always involves injustice in Proverbs. It, the idea here is that there's probably definite action that brings this about sooner than ordinarily would have been. In the context of Proverbs 20, verse 20, this haste of inheritance suggests something like intrigue. I mean, if you think about Hamlet, right? The story where the king's brother kills his brother so that he can, you know, obtain the throne. There's intrigue there. There's something similar that's going on here. But whoever does this, this inheritance that's gained hurriedly at the beginning, it will not be blessed in the end. God will not allow that sinner to go unpunished. This holds true in other cases as well. If you think about the parable of the prodigal son, there's no intrigue there. But it didn't work out well for the prodigal son. Thankfully, God was merciful and allowed him to come to his senses. Proverbs 22:16 He who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Now this proverb Proverbs 22 verse 16 is actually one of the most difficult verses in Proverbs. And uh, as I was looking at this it was, it was really hard. The, the, one of the difficulties is that the syntax in Hebrew is just really tricky. The, the word order and, and trying to understand uh, just how the author intends it is very difficult. And so my translation is a little bit different, and so I want to read it to you. You, you can follow along uh, with the translation that's in your, in, the, in your Bible. But I said, the one who oppresses the poor to multiply for himself, who gives to the rich... It results only in want. And so here's, here's the idea of this proverb. The idea is that oppressing the poor with the intention of multiplying goods or wealth or increasing one's own status will not achieve that desired goal. It will not. It results only in want. 
And why? Well, Proverbs 14.31 has very similar language. It says, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker. When you oppress the poor, you're taunting God. You're treating the image of God poorly. You're acting unjustly toward one who is made in the image of God. Now, we all love the story of Robin Hood. The best movie, of course, is the, the Disney one. But Robin Hood is a character that carries out this bringing down those who exploited the poor. And he gives to the rich. Robin Hood pulls that full reversal and takes back from the rich and gives to the poor. We love that reversal. Proverbs 15, 27. He who profits illicitly troubles his own house, but he who hates bribes will live. We'd seen something similar before in chapter 1, verse 19. It says, So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. And Proverbs 15, 6 says, Great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is in the income of the wicked. If you are pursuing riches illicitly, if you are trying to come up with schemes and deceptions and frauds to gain wealth, it won't work out for you. Stop before it's too late. And what's tricky is that, you know, we, the way that we conduct business, the way that we handle our affairs, you know, we generally try to avoid those things, but some of those deceptions can be sneaky. And we have to be careful to assess uh, the ways in which we're operating, the things that we say, the way that we use our words, the way that we communicate to those that we're doing business with. And uphold integrity and honesty at all costs. You may think that withholding some information is going to benefit you, but withholding is akin to deception. You're presenting your product, you're presenting what you have as something other than what it is. Proverbs 10, verse 2, ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Ill-gotten gains will not profit. Proverbs 28, 8, he who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. Whatever wealth that you gain in this way, using fraud and corruption, will not stay. It will not last. It will not be yours. Now, greed and injustice can seem like obvious pitfalls. But there's a third danger that's nearly indiscernible from the outside, and that is trusting in wealth. Trusting in wealth. You have to really examine your heart carefully to see whether you are trusting in your wealth or in the hope of wealth. Proverbs 18.11, it says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his own imagination. Now, if you just take the first part of that, you could think, man, that's saying some really good things about being rich. That's, saying, that's talking about some real advantages of having wealth. It's a strong city. It's a high wall. You know, those are, those are defensive. That's defensive language. But then it adds the, the key that unlocks the whole thing. In his own imagination. 
Imagination, uh, in other places, usually refers uh, to the idea of idolatry. It's often a sculpted image. And so the idea is that this man has this sculpted image in his mind. That's what he sees when he sees his wealth. He sees a high city. He sees strong walls. Other way around, strong city, high walls. Did you get the idea? But wealth can easily become an idol of the heart. When you start to trust in your financial stability rather than the one who provides financial stability, you've lost the plot. You're getting things completely out of order. And what will happen? Proverbs eleven twenty eight. He who trusts in his riches will fall. That's the outcome. If you trust in your riches, the sure outcome is that you will fall. But the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. You won't flourish if you're trusting in your riches. And by the way, if you're trusting in your riches, you're being contrasted with the righteous. Trusting in your riches is unrighteous. It's a pursuit of death, a pursuit of failure. So how do you measure your net worth? Do you measure it according to the world's standard of material gain? Do you look at the things that you have in your possession? Or do you measure it according to God's standard? Do you think, oh, all of these things are mine. This is my money. This is my house. These are my things. Or do you see them rightly as the gift of God? God is the one who gives these things. They're not yours. You may have possession and mastery of them for a time, but ultimately the things that you have are not yours. That's an important lesson. A great safeguard against these dangers of wealth and money, a safeguard against greed, injustice, and trusting in wealth, is remembering that wealth and money are blessings, blessings from God. The second feature of God's wisdom concerning wealth is the blessings of wealth. And we can look at the blessings of wealth uh, in a few different ways. We can think of wealth as a means of status. Wealth is a means of status. You know, this is a good that God gives us through wealth. You know, we spend a lot of time looking at the dangers of wealth, but there are positive things about wealth. You know, wealth is not all bad. I know there are some people out there that want to, you know, sell that idea, and maybe they're trying to you know, profit in some way off of that idea. But wealth can be a good from the Lord. Proverbs 14.20 says, The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. Now, is this saying that if you're poor, you shouldn't expect people to like you? I don't think it is. The idea is that the rich attract people who want to be their friends, while the poor are often dismissed. Now, we read that, and we probably think a little more cynically, like, yeah, well, these people just want to be friends with the rich, so that way they can get advantages. There may be some truth to that. But I think the idea that the proverb is pointing to is social status as a benefit of wealth. Proverbs 19.4 says a similar thing. Wealth adds many friends but a poor man is separated from his friend. There's an advantage to wealth in having people around you that 
that love you and want, your, want what's good for you. Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. You know, if you're wealthy, you know, you, you implicitly have this responsibility of, you know, managing your own wealth, welfare, your own funds, but often that involves, you know, having people that you're, you know, hiring, people that you're paying, people that are in your employ, in, in your service. You know, in the Old Testament, that would have been a lot like, you know, having people that were uh, hired hands, people that were slaves possibly. Thankfully, we don't have slavery today. You know, it's a different world. But we still, uh, you know, often see the rich in these positions of power, these positions of influence. And we see also that the borrower becomes the lender's slave. You know, this is similar to an idea that we saw uh, before in, in Proverbs chapter 6, where you don't want to put yourself in a position of being enslaved to somebody financially, but the reality is that it happens. And so wealth can be a benefit. It can be a real a blessing as a means of social status. But it can also uh, just be seen as a gift from God. You know, it's a blessing because it's a gift from God. Now, that may not be the most creative, uh, you know, thing. It's a blessing because it's a gift from God. Obviously, that's a blessing. You know, it's kind of like they're interchangeable concepts. I agree. I was tired. <laughs> but it is true that wealth is a gift from God. Now, uh, Proverbs 10, verse 22 says, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. Now, this does not say that there is no hard work involved in gaining wealth. It's not saying that. But it is saying that God does not add pain-filled labor to the wealth. If you, re- if you look at Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, I'll read it for you. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. The idea is that if God is not blessing your labors, if he's not blessing your ventures, all of your efforts are in vain. One commentator said righteous diligence is the means of God's blessing. But this blessing does not depend on hard, strenuous labor alone. Wounding labor comes from self-ambition and stands under God's judgment, not his blessing. And what, what kind of man does God bless with riches? Does he bless just anybody and everybody? Sorry, I didn't put the verses up there. Proverbs 22.4, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. We've seen this verse before as we looked at humility. Humility and the fear of the Lord go hand in hand. They go together. You can't separate them. If you have the fear of the Lord, you have humility. If you have humility, you have the fear of the Lord. True humility, that is. But the reward are riches, honor, and life. God gives wealth. He blesses people with wealth. But we should never forget that all our labors and pursuits will be in vain 
if we are working crossways with God's purposes for us and for our resources. But we also need to remember that wealth and money are not everything. They have limits. So let's consider the limits of wealth. We've all heard the truism that there are some things money can't buy. And this idea was the theme for the the hit song by the Beatles, Can't Buy Me Love. You've probably also seen those MasterCard commercials. You know, for everything else, there's MasterCard. I don't know if they still make those. They used to, though. So, you know, there are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. We all know that money isn't everything. The world gets this, too. And yet the world always has an obsession with obtaining as much money as possible, hopefully with the least amount of effort possible. But riches don't buy the things that matter. Proverbs 17, verse 16 says, Why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom when he has no sense? Some people think they can fix problems by just throwing money at them. But if you lack wisdom, just spending money won't cause you to become wiser. Lacking wisdom is a moral issue. The fool needs a radical change of heart before he can acquire wisdom. Money is not going to grant him a changed heart. Proverbs 19, 14. House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. House and wealth, amen, that's right. (laughs) House and wealth are ultimately from the Lord as well. You know, we can't forget that. But the idea here is that the Lord provides a prudent spouse in a more direct way than he provides an inheritance. You know, if, if you think about the cultural setting here, I mean, it was, in many cases, the weddings were prearranged. You know, in many cases, you might actually be, you know, uh, spending some money in the process of acquiring a wife, you know, paying a dowry or something like that. But you had no way of knowing or guaranteeing that the woman that you were marrying was actually going to be prudent. You had no idea, no way to know if it was actually going to work out. It is a gift from the Lord. It's not something that money will get you. A godly spouse is a gift from the Lord. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. There are people who are wealthy that have a good reputation. But there are people that are poor that have a good reputation. It has nothing to do with how much money they have in their bank account or how much property they own. And then the next verse, Proverbs 22.2, The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. Your wealth or your lack thereof will not gain you a different status before God. He is the maker of rich and poor alike. Now this principle is the basis for the equality under the law in our nation's founding documents. If any of you you happen to go to a school where they still taught the the Declaration of Independence, you've probably heard this before. This is from the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. It says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, 
that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our founding fathers recognized this principle. They recognized that men are created by God as equals. Proverbs 28:11. The rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor who has understanding sees through him. It's it's better to be poor than rich. If here's the if, if you have understanding and the rich man doesn't. The rich man is wise in his own eyes, but the poor who has understanding sees through him. The poor man here has the advantage. And his wealth or lack thereof, did not get him that advantage. Proverbs 31, verses 10 and 11. An excellent wife, who can find? For her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. I got to hear a husband say amen. (laughs) Amen. Her worth is far above jewels. Wealth will not acquire you an excellent wife. God will give the excellent wife, not wealth. And so riches don't buy the things that matter. But also riches don't endure forever. Proverbs 18.11, we saw it earlier. A rich man's wealth is a strong city and like a high wall in his own imagination. But the foolishness of trusting in wealth is that it is not the security that you think it is. Now, if you think about Job, you know, he certainly didn't think that his wealth was going anywhere. And suddenly it was all taken from him in the blink of an eye. You know, one servant after another came to him and said, all of these disasters have happened. Proverbs 27, verses 23 and 24. Know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. For riches are not forever nor does a crown endure to all generations. And don't place confidence in the idea that things will just stay the way they are. Keep a diligent focus on things that are entrusted to your care because circumstances change. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. This one is really important. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. You talk about a message that's contrary to the world, that's contrary to the way that the world thinks. Cease from your consideration of it. Don't even think about it. Why? Verse 5, when you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Now that's poetry. Wealth should not be your objective. It's fleeting. It passes. It's not one of those things that endures and lasts forever. Rather, just pursue diligence in your work, recognizing that God made you to work for his purposes. Pursue righteousness, which is worth more than all earthly gain. Uh, think about what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God and, his, and its righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What will? The things that you need. Pursue the fear of the Lord, which is worth more than anything this world can give you. A third limit. Riches don't excel righteousness. 
Proverbs 28.6 says, Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. Now, this word crooked, if you look at the, the note in your NASB, it says perverse of two ways. The idea is duplicitous. Somebody who is deceptive. But the poor who walks in his integrity is better. It's better to be poor and to have integrity than to be rich and be crooked, be deceptive and deceitful. 11.28, we already saw it. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Riches don't excel righteousness. Proverbs 11.4, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. God blesses you with wealth, but you have to recognize that wealth has its limits. There are some things that money can't do. There are certain things that money can't buy. It will not buy you a right standing before God. God, although he is the one who gives wealth and he has set the limits upon wealth, still requires us to be good stewards of our wealth and money, which brings us to the fourth feature of God's wisdom concerning wealth, and that is the stewardship of wealth. And the first aspect of stewarding wealth has to do with our labor, laboring. Proverbs 14, verses 23 and 24, says, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the folly of fools is foolishness. Now, as we look at stewarding wealth, it's more to remember that some of the things that we've looked at before in Proverbs, particularly about the sluggard, are going to be applicable in in this category as well, as we think about stewarding our resources. He says, in all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. We've all known the guy who, who schmoozes the hierarchy with his gab, you know, the, the guy who's your coworker that he can, he can cut up with the manager and they're good buds and you're over here, you know, you're, you're working. You know, you're doing your job. But the other guy, you know, he's getting away with not doing anything because he knows how to, he knows how to work his jaw, you know. We've all known that guy. And that might work for him for a season, but eventually when things get tight, those who have authority will look for the most expendable people and those will be the first to go. People don't gain lasting wealth without work. It's a means that God has ordained to gaining wealth. We see that the crown of the wise is their riches, but the folly of fools is foolishness. There's something about being wise that compels you to pursue a good stewardship, to use your resources well. Proverbs 13, 11. Wealth gained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. And we looked at this verse when we looked at injustice as one of the dangers of pursuing wealth, but there's a lesson about stewardship here as well. It's all about stewardship and using your resources wisely. Authentic work is good stewardship. Now, Paul seems to draw upon this principle of Proverbs 13, 11, when he writes Ephesians 4, 28. He says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the, with the one 
who has need. Now, Paul is not making a direct quote. It's possible that he's making an allusion here, but it could just be this principle is floating around in his mind and it comes to the fore as he's writing these things. But it's the same principle. The one who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor. Now, this is a call to repent. If you find yourself, you know, pursuing wealth by fraud, literally by, by vain pursuits, it will dwindle. But the one who gathers by labor increases it. God will enrich you for the purpose of blessing others through you. That's the idea. In Proverbs 21, verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. God calls for diligence in the pursuit of profit, not get-rich-quick schemes. Pursuing hasty wealth reveals a sluggard's heart, and we have to be careful and assess our hearts. But another aspect of stewarding our, our wealth stewardship of wealth, is saving. Proverbs 21.17 says, He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. Uh, A better translation, I think, is a poor man loves joy. He who loves wine and oil will not gain wealth. It is not inherently sinful to love joy, to love happiness. I mean, we're told to rejoice always. But if you love the delicacies of life, rich products, I mean, the wine and oil, they were the the high-dollar items of the day. If you love the experience of high-grade material goods, you will not gain wealth because you'll be spending money, what money you have, on these things. That's what loving these things looks like. Now, I mean, there's a sense in which I love steak. But if I tried to eat a New York strip every single day, I'd feel a little sick, probably. But I would also have very little in the way of financial resources. I don't love steak so much that I pursue it to my harm. But the man who does pursue those things to his harm, it leads only to poverty. Loving wine and oil or anything to the extent that you sacrifice well-being is an indicator of idolatry in your heart. Proverbs 22, verses 26 and 7. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Stewarding your resources means knowing when to become guarantor for someone's debt. You avoid it, especially if you yourself lack the means to repay the debt. This is a general rule, but it, it does not mean that there are never times when it's appropriate to co-sign for somebody, to, to help somebody to get into a more stable situation if you have good reason to trust them. But there's always risk, and you should always treat this type of situation with caution. Moreover, it's bad stewardship if you become guarantor for a debt and you have nothing to back it up with. Proverbs 22.7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. We saw that. And so saving and using your money wisely is part of stewarding your wealth. But also, 
giving. Now, we think about giving, and we think, how in the world does that help us gain wealth? It doesn't seem to make sense according to the world's standards, how the world thinks. But we don't live according to the world's standards. We don't think according to the world's thinking. Proverbs 19.17, the one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. This is not what goes around comes around. This is not karma. This is God intentionally honoring the one who is gracious to the poor man. The poor here is not just somebody who doesn't have money. That's not the idea. It can't involve that. But poor refers to the weak and helpless, those who lack strength. Now, clearly the way in which he is gracious is through spending his own finances for the benefit of the one who's unable to help himself. We see that from the verbs that are used here. But there is nothing here about This is what's fascinating. There's nothing here about being rich before helping the poor man. You don't have to have a a lot of wealth to help others. You don't have to have this vast pool of resources to be able to help those who are weak and helpless. It is good and right to help those who are weak and, and, and unable to provide for themselves, unable to plead their own cause. Another verse we saw earlier, Proverbs 21, verses 25 and 26. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving. Here's the contrast. While the righteous gives and does not hold back. The sluggard is the one who withholds assistance to those in need because he's greedy. While the righteous gives freely because he's not controlled by the lusts of his flesh. The sluggard has this life-dominating sin, sin that's taken mastery over him. It's evidence that his heart is not right with God. But the righteous man is totally different. His heart is right with God, and he gives and does not hold back. Proverbs 28, verse 8, He who increases his wealth by interest and usury gathers it for him who is gracious to the poor. 28-27, he who gives to the poor will never want, but he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. He who gives to the poor will never want. Now, when you hear that, I hope you think of Psalm 23. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's the same word. He who gives to the poor will never want. The one who gives to the poor, who is his shepherd? The Lord. The Lord is his shepherd. By contrast, he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Not just want. He will have many curses. Be careful with your money. That you don't hoard it. That you don't act greedily with it that you steward it well by giving to those that God gives you opportunity to give to. God intends for us to steward the wealth and resources we have received from him. It's good stewardship to apply ourselves diligently. It's also wise stewardship to be generous to those who are in need. 
God has given you what you have, and he can just as easily take it from you. We need to have that Job mentality. God has given, and God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. As we conclude this study of wealth and riches in Proverbs, I think it's helpful to return to a text that we saw last time when Joshua taught on the wisdom of Agur in Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. It says, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. As Joshua pointed out last time, this statement appears in a larger context of learning humility. We must all be careful of our heart motives with regard to wealth and money. We looked at the dangers. We looked at the limits. We also saw the blessings. We have to be careful that we're not allowing our wealth to become an idol. It's easy, and Agur recognizes this. We all have a sin nature from the moment of our conception. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, David is not saying that his mother conceived him immorally. You know, there are some people out there that think that sex itself is a sin, is an immoral action. No, the term here is actually a term that comes from animal husbandry. David compares himself to a beast because of his sin. Conceive is just the bodily act of becoming pregnant, the bodily act of forming offspring in the womb. From the moment you began forming in the womb, you were corrupted with sin. We all were. Sin ruins everything. And Agur recognized this. Because the danger of having, there's a danger of having wealth and there's a danger of having poverty. And so Agur's insight is that the flesh is so easily swayed to sinful extremes that moderation is the ideal pursuit. Don't let a love or a pursuit of wealth and money become a stumbling block in your heart and in your life. Guard yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, you are good and gracious. God, in your providence, you have wisely governed your world. You have wisely governed creation. You have ordained everything that comes to pass. God, we know that you are just and faithful. Lord, I pray that as we receive the blessings that you give us, that we would be wise that we would reflect your wisdom and what you command in your word. Father, I pray that we would pursue Christ's likeness. Lord, he was compassionate toward those who were in need. He did not allow himself to become uh, tied to material goods and material things. Father, he taught us to seek first your kingdom and its righteousness. And Father, I pray that we would do so and that we would not allow 
what we have to become a snare. Father, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.